welcome everyone to what is now the third edition of Well Spoken. This is Stevenson Harbour's oil and gas route's way of keeping in touch with our clients during lockdown. As people may know, the, the first episode was on force majeure. The second episode was on contractual discretion within oil and gas contracts. And this episode really uh, follows a similar theme. And we're going to be talking about termination rights in oil and gas contracts. And this coincides with our recent publication of a magazine called Well Connected, which is our magazine for the floating production industry. So we're going to be using FPSOs today as an example, but what we're talking about really applies throughout the oil and gas industry, whether it's FPSOs, FSRUs, FLNG, oil rigs, and, and generally it applies across oil and gas contracting. So today we've got Stuart Beadnell. Stuart, do you want to say... Hello to the listeners. Uh, hi, everybody. I just introducing myself. I worked for an oil company ooh, many years ago, principally in their um, offshore division. And since then, I've been working with clients doing uh, floating production, LNG contracts. Uh, used to do loads of big new rig projects. I uh, must say, I haven't done many of those in the last couple of years. And um, partner in London office and author of the book on offshore construction uh, relating to oil and gas vessels. Um, I published that just before the the oil price plummeted and I was rather hoping it would be going up again before we do the second edition. Great, thanks Stuart. Um, Max, do you want to give an intro? Yeah, my name's Max Lomansky. I've worked for many years in the same area and field and indeed often alongside Stuart. For my part, I'm the editor of uh, Well Connected, and if you get the opportunity to uh, get a copy of that, then it's my mug that you'll see on the front of that. But yeah, the news is once again very depressing vis-a-vis the oil price, but I suppose that's why we're here talking about what we're going to talk about today. Great. Thanks, guys. So um, we're we're talking about uh, termination rights. So all contracts will have some kind of termination rights, and sometimes those are no blame type termination, for example, force majeure, or sometimes they're more blameworthy type events. So generally, given the fact that we work in a fairly collaborative industry where you know, people are rubbing shoulders against each other on a fairly regular basis, what's the real likelihood in the current market that um, people are going to rely on termination rights? Well, I think the first point to focus on is that those termination rights are there and the circumstances which they cover are are quite likely to arise in many situations. So we we may reach the point where one party is sitting on a right of termination of the contract. Uh, It may think that its um, commercial circumstances are poor and therefore it would suit their interests to terminate. may obviously wish to look at long-term relationships and the importance of that in the oil and gas business, but it may be facing real financial difficulties. So it may wish to exercise those rights. Although I think in in many cases, of course, bearing in mind the long-term relationships, what they're more likely to do is to use the the threat of termination to negotiate a better deal. I think it's fair to say we've seen a lot of renegotiations in the market at the moment and the... um... It's a bit of a reversal in fortune because at the moment, of course, it, it, it's the big oil companies in particular feeling the pinch and, and looking to renegotiate terms uh, with their offshore contractors. And I suppose um, they may be looking at long-term postponements, uh, reductions in price, 
reductions in the scope of work of, of their services. And I, and I think really the important point for any parties involved in termination is, is um, or at least negotiations um, preceding any termination, is you have to have a clear idea of the strength of your arguments. Do you actually have a right of termination? And if you do, then how do you exercise it um, without falling into all of the traps relating relating to uh, renunciation of contracts where you don't actually have a right to terminate? So on, on that theme, I'm looking at my contract. I'm, I think I've got a slam dunk right to, to terminate or, or vice versa. I think my counterparty's got a right to terminate. Are there any clever wheezes that we need to be aware of which are outside the actual terms of the contract? You know, for example, the, the right to or the obligation to act reasonably or alternatively, you, you read a lot now about um, the duty to act in good faith. So is there anything outside the terms of the contract that people need to be aware of? No, not at all. The, the, the strength of English law contracts in this industry is that you don't have to look outside the contract. You just look at what's written in the contract. And if that gives you a clear, as you say, slam dunk right to terminate, then you can exercise that right if you really want to. What do you think, Mike? I think that's right. Although, of course, I think Mark also has a point in that the good faith as a concept has been gradually creeping into English law in recent years. And of course, there's recent case law in relation to what people call relational contracts, where both parties are obliged to collaborate. But I think really uh, we would take the view that this is only a restatement of the prevention principle uh, and the obligation of good faith really relates to a situation where one party cannot prevent the other from performing. And in those circumstances, the first party then uses the non-performance for termination. I think that's conceptually difficult. But we, we get asked about good faith quite a lot and relational contracts quite a lot. But I think what it really boils down to is this, is that sophisticated um, business-to-business uh, contracts, such as we find in the oil and gas industry, I think when it comes down to it, those parties can be expected to provide for their contractual rights in their contract. And if that right allows for one party a right of termination, then it's going to be very difficult for the other party to to start relying on notions of good faith and relational contracts. Thanks, Max. So going back to the first episode, and everyone uh, was very interested and still are interested about force majeure. And what I'd like to know is what is the relationship going to be between the termination clause and the force majeure clause? Are, are they one or the other or can they coexist at the same time? Well, I think the important point to bear in mind here is that even if one party says, oh, I'm sorry, I, I can't perform, but I'm relying on the force majeure clause, the type of contracts we see usually put a maximum period of time of force majeure and expressly say when that period has been exceeded there is a right of termination uh, and maybe just very briefly the the sort of three situations we're talking about is perhaps a construction contract an epic contract they'll always have a provision entitling termination for delay and a provision for termination if it's force majeure delay if you're delivering one of these facilities into a project and have to arrive at a location. There's usually a deadline for that. And if you don't meet it, then um, you, you will face termination. And it will usually include within it, in a normal operating contract, a maximum period of force majeure, which sometimes can be as low as, say, 60 days. 
because even if it's a five-year-plus contract, if you claim force majeure of 60 days, then the termination right comes into play. Yeah, I think people often forget about that, don't they? Because I think people assume that because it's force majeure, that, that it's, a, as Mark said at the start of the podcast, he, he said that it's a non-fault situation, and that's right, of course. But the, you still need to have a period of time after which uh, the party he was, I suppose, the innocent party, although it's a non-fault situation. So the party dealing with a counterparty was not performing. In those circumstances, you still need a bit of the ability to terminate. It's an allocation of risk point. And people assume, well, 60 days of force majeure is very unlikely, but I don't think anyone expected COVID-19 and, and all of its outcomes. Uh, and when you're looking at these kinds of clauses, if 60 days has expired uh, and that does give the counterparty the right to terminate, then that's the end of it. Of course, if you're the party that did claim force majeure and then is thinking, oops, it's going on rather a long time now and the 60-day period is coming up, then the question is, can you say, well, I know I said it was force majeure, but I think I've changed my mind now. I mean, that's tricky, isn't it? That's how the contract, I mean, that's, a, I don't think, because you can't obviously dictate what the force majeure event is. The question is, well, does it fall within, if the original notice that started the force majeure clock running, as it were, if that was a valid notice, then it's unlikely that you can just unilaterally withdraw that if the force majeure event is still continuing. So I think that's a difficult argument. So moving on to the current market situation, I, th- I think what everyone acknowledges is, you know, particularly in the, the service sector of oil and gas, the market can change incredibly quickly. So it, it becomes a buyer's market to a seller's market and vice versa. So to what extent can either the service company or the oil and gas company just sit on their hands and kind of play out the optionality of whether or not to terminate? In other words, wait to see which way the market is moving. Well, I'd suggest that um, you've got to be very careful if you do that. Obviously, the first thing you have to do is reserve your rights because you don't want to be seen to be waiving the rights. And if you're requiring performance while at the same time hoping to keep the right of termination in your back pocket, those two might be inconsistent. So it, it doesn't automatically follow that you can reserve your rights in that way. And the other point to bear in mind, of course, it depends on how your clause is written. Some clauses are written to say that you have a right of termination at a particular time. They're not clauses that entitle you to terminate sometime in the future whenever you choose. But what tends to happen, I think, is that if, again, there's a right of termination and you, you want to defer it, then that's a classic example where you would then go and negotiate a deferral rather than just leave it out there in the open. And often what happens, as, as you've told me, Stuart, is you will, you'll be talking about the termination, you'll be talking about the default, and often that will be used as some kind of trigger in which the parties will actually get together, cure the, the default, waive the termination, and actually get together and try and renegotiate the, the basic commercial terms of the contract. Is that the point in time that you kind of give up and you hand over the commercial deal to lawyers like me to, to get on with, with the drafting, or, or do you continue with it? Well, I'm, I'm sure you'll have a very important role to play, Mark, but um, certainly it isn't our involvement at all, thank you very much, uh, because we are essentially doing two things here. We're, we're resolving a dispute or perhaps postponing it or agreeing how we're going to deal with it in the future, while at the same time trying to uh, negotiate an interim arrangement 
to keep the relationship going. Max, anything to add to that? Well, I, I just think it's very hard because, especially in these highly complex contracts, well, you might you might be able to cure it, you might not, it might be ongoing, but the parties might have decided, or at least the the innocent party or the party with the right to terminate might say, well, I'm not going to terminate right now, but maybe that right continues. And maybe whilst they're entering into these uh, negotiations, they have to discuss all kinds of things such as delay uh, provisions relating to uh, LDs. There might be question marks in relation to warranty items. One of the questions you often have is, well, what time does the warranty uh, provision kick in if you have a 12-month warranty on a piece of equipment and the project's delayed by nine months then when does the warranty start and how do you how do you go through acceptance what about additional costs the variation mechanism in the contracts unlikely to apply um, so I think you're looking at a sort of myriad of issues which I, I think are sort of uh, bread and butter to the litigator because they're going to find ways of turning these into disputes if, if that's what their clients want but the problem is the quick that people want to do and therefore they're negotiated quickly often in the context of uh, uh, allegations and disputes flying around so it's, you're really negotiating a, a short-term solution but i would say it's a bit like lockdown it's much easier to introduce than to actually find your way out of and we had one recently where there's an interim agreement relating to oil production it's intended to run for three months but it actually ran for nearly two years I mean, that one was an absolute mess. And of course, it worked very well for one of the parties because they essentially got a much better deal than they should ever have been entitled to. And people do look for, I mean, you talked about relational contracts and the duties of good faith, but often parties will see opportunity in these moments to deliberately not come up with a, with a decent fix, or at least to come up with a, a fix which is very much a unilateral fix. Uh, as far as they're concerned. So we shouldn't assume that just because they have a long-term relationship, that they're always going to be reasonable uh, when they come to renegotiate these terms at, at difficult times. Whose telephone is that? It's, um, it's a ring central call, isn't it? Which I have no idea how to deal with those. Um, can I add that, yes, what, what you're often doing is trying to uh, negotiate settlement of the dispute at the same time as trying to put a new relationship in place. And one way of doing that is to separate the two so that you might have what we would call a without prejudice deal. So you put something in its place to keep things going for the, the short term. Uh, and then without prejudice agreement is the way in which you agree how you're going to try and resolve your dispute. And some of the difficulties there are that you put that in place. If you can't resolve your dispute, then your agreement might say you resolve it in arbitration. But once the arbitrators give their decision, uh, how do you then put in place a new long-term arrangement to replace the interim agreement that you've entered into? And I think the problem there is a lot of people think, oh, well, we'll resolve the dispute in arbitration if necessary thinking that the arbitrators would then impose a new sensible agreement for the relationship of the parties going forward. But the reality is they won't do that. They simply resolve the dispute in front of them and leave it to the parties to agree what they want in their future contract. So I think that's an example of where they do a quick fix, but in fact, they're just leaving the problems to be resolved in the future.
So references to things like uh, without prejudice correspondence, etc., just shows me that these are fairly careful discussions which clients need to to work out and to uh, achieve some kind of compromises with their counterparties. And clearly, it's almost like they need, I hesitate to use the word, uh, a roadmap in order to sort out these disputes. About a roadmap with directions. Yeah, exactly. Roadmap with no directions. So hopefully it is uh, going to be a slightly clearer roadmap than some of the roadmaps we've been given in terms of getting the economy and society uh, back into something like normality. So, Stuart, any concluding remarks for our clients on this subject? Well, if, if we're going down the sort of how did we get into this lockdown mess analogy, then I think that you've got to think ahead and don't wait until these problems arise and then just hope that somehow you can negotiate your way out of it, get ready, work out well in advance where the risks are, what the strength of your arguments are. Uh, and I think what is even most important, if you realise that you're in some difficulty, decide what compromises you'd be willing to make in order to um, keep the show on the road. Thanks. Max, any final words from you? Um, it's always best to assume the worst and to prepare very carefully and make sure you know exactly what your contract allows you to do. Because as I, as we said a few minutes ago, I've seen plenty of opportunities taken uh, by counterparties. We shouldn't just assume that they're going to play nice. And a lot of people use these op- as, as opportunities to get a much better deal. Great. Well, Max, Stuart, thank you very much for your time today. Thank you. Thanks, everyone.